We're going to finish up uh, our whole adventure with Peter that we've been on. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, you can pull out your notes. There's a, a section here that had bugged me a little bit because I couldn't figure it out, uh, an eschatological question. That's a cool word. It's fun to say. just means I think I've figured out uh, how the end times work. That's basically what that word means. But it, you sound way smarter if you say eschatological. Uh, so there. Anyway, um, because Peter gets into that a little bit here, we're going to get into that a little bit. So we're going we're gonna to finish up the last chapter in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3 will be all done. Um, just so you know, um, I'm not going to tell you exactly where we're going after, um, but uh, God has been poking me with uh, John 10, 27 and Romans 8, 14. So it will have something to do with that uh, in case you want to get prepared. All right, so let's begin. I'm just going to take it in sections. I want to read the first two verses in 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, Paul says, Beloved, I'm sorry, Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So, uh, very simply, he's saying, I want to remind you, again, he's reminded us about four times now in these books, I want to remind you again to pay attention to the words of the prophets and to the words of the apostles, which is the bulk of Scripture, right? And so, he is reminding us, don't lose the foundation. Remember, we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone that the church is built on, but that the church is built on the foundation, it says, of the apostles and prophets. In other words, the prophetic words and the instruction or the prophetic words of the apostles, as well as the prophets in the Old Testament. That this is, we have to cling to this. Uh, sometimes uh, we can let go of uh, some Old Testament or some concepts, and we need to not do that. We need to make sure we know the whole Bible, uh, at least generally speaking. We need to cling to the words of the apostles and prophets. They are our foundation. We can build all kinds of things from there, but we can't build on different foundations, right? So he's reminding us of that, and the reason he's reminding us of that is, is <clears throat> because he's going to talk about the last days, again, eschatology, <clears throat> and how there will be scoffers or mockers in the last days. Is anyone surprised? Nope. Okay, so let's look at verse 3 through 7. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. And that word scoffers could also be translated mockers. Um, and uh, they have a lot of fun laughing at us. Uh, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts or desires. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, they intentionally forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Now that's a reference to the creation story in the first few chapters of Genesis. Um, and by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water, which is, of course, a reference to Noah's flood. Okay? So I want you to get what he's talking about here. He's saying there's going to be scoffers uh, in the last days. They're going to mock. And uh, the reason they're going to do that is because they're being led by their desires and their lusts. And, and you cannot stand on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and enjoy your desires and your lusts because they're in conflict with one another, right? So you have to pick one. So they're going to move off the foundation, we'll see as we go on, um, and uh, begin to question some things of that foundation so that they can pursue uh, their own lusts and desires. Anybody see that going on in the earth? Do I have to explain further? 
All right, one person. Okay, great. All right, that's good. There's more. I was hoping you were paying attention. So it says he questioned uh, that there's a couple things here that they will scoff at or mock. One of the things is they said that they begin to question his second coming. Now, I find this interesting because a lot of the things that the Bible talks about we're going to see in the end times, I'm seeing right now. Um, you know, wars and rumors of wars and, uh, you know, a love of many growing cold and, and those kinds of things. But I haven't seen this in a big way. I haven't seen a lot of, at least in the church. And so I'm wondering if this will be a sign that we're really close, that people begin to say, ah, we've been hearing about his coming for years and years and years. I don't think it's going to happen. He's not, you know, things just keep going as they always have. I don't think, I think we've, the church has overemphasized that. Uh, by the way, you cannot overemphasize that. The apostles emphasized it pretty hard. So um, they're going to question his second coming, his returning to the earth. And really, it's not just that he's not going to come, but all, all the purposes that are entailed in his second coming. Because he's, he's not just coming because he hasn't visited in a while. He's coming uh, to restore the earth, to judge the wicked, to destroy those who destroy the earth. So um, they're really questioning that whole scenario, that whole intent, okay? Try and get us to back off of that, because if he's not going to come and judge the earth, eh, you know, you can, you can go ahead and entertain some of your lusts and desires. It'll probably be okay. Probably won't have to pay the consequences, right? And, which is why we are grounded on the words of the prophets and the apostles. And it says what I find interesting, and I am saying that they intentionally forget two significant historical events. One, that God created the earth from nothing. It was formless and void, and apparently covered in water, and he made all this, which is fairly impressive. And he only did it in seven days. Six, really. He just The seventh day, he just sat back and enjoyed it. And uh, the flood. Now, they might even acknowledge something flood-like happened, but what they're, what they're des denying is the, the purpose or intent of the flood. It wasn't a natural event. It was God uh, doing something, making a point. And so I find it interesting that uh, the, the things that Peter says have, have happened that we need to remember, that are, and the flood actually isn't an event by itself. It's a, it's a precursor, like so many other things in the Old Testament are, to remind us of something coming in the future, uh, something that's going to happen at his second coming. We will get into that. The reason Paul's, I'm sorry, Peter is talking about the flood is because he's going to talk about the flood was the first time God remade the earth, right? It didn't just, uh, we didn't just have a flood and went back to everything the way it was. It was radically different earth when it was done. He remade the earth. He's going to remake the earth again, and Peter's going to talk about that. That's why he's talking about the flood. He's going, remember the flood, because that's going to happen again, just not a flood, right? So, uh, and by the way, he did promise a flood wouldn't happen again, so you don't have to worry about global warming and the oceans destroying the earth. Because Jesus said, no, it's going to be something different this time. It will be warm, though. Okay, so... <laughs> Just trying to help. They intentionally forget creation. Let's go with evolution, right? All this has been billions of years, has been going on, it's going to continue for billions of years, and he's not coming, right? So they willfully forget that. They willfully forget the intent or purpose of the flood. The purpose of the flood was to destroy evil and to remake the earth. Uh, we see this again, we see this purpose repeated in Revelation eleven eighteen, 18, where uh, Jesus, when he comes for the second time, it says he will destroy those who destroy the earth. It's not that he's just lost his temper and had enough. It's that he's restoring the earth. And so at some point, he's going to remove the things that are destroying the earth. And that includes a lot of people, right? So... What they've forgotten is that it's God's earth. I love Sefi prayed this in pre-service prayer this morning, uh, that it's God's earth. Uh, Psalm 24, 
uh, 1 through 2, one of my favorite psalms, that says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, in case that isn't specific enough, the people and all who dwell in it. And then verse 2 tells us why. Because he founded it. I made it. It's mine. I made you. You're mine. I can do anything I want with it and you. And they forget that willfully, right? And so that's what's going on. Uh, they forget that the flood was a precursor to what's going to happen, that he will perfect his creation, the people and the planet. It will be made perfect. It will be made perfect. He promises, and he will keep that promise. And so uh, we have to decide if we want to be made perfect or be destroyed as part of that which destroys the earth, right? It's pretty simple. You want to be perfect or destroyed. It's, it's a fairly simple choice. Okay. Then he goes on and he talks about how, uh, let's see, I read through verse 7, right? Yeah. But the heavens and earth, which are, did I read all that? I should read all that. Okay. <laughs> Uh, saying, uh, well, let's just read it again. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But... The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So what he's saying is the heavens and the earth uh, are held together by the living word of God, by Jesus Christ. We have this very clearly in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says the world was made by him and for him. And the Greek literally says, is held together by him. I find this fascinating. This is an opportunity to do some physics. So how many of you love physics? Okay. Wow. Excellent. More people than we're into eschatology. Okay. Uh, so uh, real quick, um, the holy grail of physics is called the grand unification theory. Physics is about force and what forces do and trying to understand those so that we can send rockets to the moon, stuff like that. And they've narrowed it down to all things uh, fall into the categories of four forces, strong force, weak force, gravity, and electromagnetic force, right? Of those four, we understand one pretty well. Um, the other three, are, we know they're there. We don't know how they work, okay, including gravity. Uh, or we know how they work. We don't know why they work. So... What I find fascinating is that the strong force and the weak force have to do with the nucleus of elements, everything that's together. And the bottom line is no one can figure out why things stay together. They should not stay together. Uh, like particles in the nucleus should be separating, but they don't. And so they do things like um, you have really cool terms like the Higgs boson, and they're looking for the Higgs field that maybe holds everything together, or maybe there's enough matter in the and the uh, Higgs boson particle to hold everything together, and then they name it the God particle, and then the physicists get mad because they don't want God to have anything to do with it. Um, uh, I don't know who did that, Time Magazine or somebody. Uh, and no one gets around to reading Colossians where it says, he holds all things together. He is basically the strong force. Now, I don't know if there's some actual physics that goes with that or not, uh, but no one can figure out why matter holds together. It shouldn't. Isn't that interesting? And so we forget in our, in our intelligence, in our science, that he holds all together. And so Peter's reminding us that the one who holds the heaven and earth together is the same one. The word that holds heaven and earth together is the same word that is said uh, the elements will at some point melt with fervent heat, that he has reserved it for fire in the day of judgment. Verse 7, right? So we're going to talk about that fire thing a lot today because uh, Peter does. He brought it up. I just got to do what he says. So, uh, but what I want you to see is it's the same redemptive purposes as the flood. It's a, the flood is a picture 
of the second remaking of the earth, the new heaven and the new earth, will be remade this time. Instead of using water, he's going to use fire. It's a cleansing. It's a purifying. It's the same redemptive purpose. He didn't just get mad and flood the earth. He was removing evil, and he was remaking the earth. Now, it wasn't a full remaking because the earth, as you know, you guys live here, it still has issues, right? Um, the next remaking of the earth will be fully remade and will be awesome, right? Will be perfect. So let's get into that. Now, so uh, it's very clear that he's going to remake the earth this time with fire, not water, because he promised he wouldn't again. Um, he didn't promise he wouldn't destroy the earth, just that he wouldn't use water. So there you go. In verses 8 and 9, uh, these are fun. Peter says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. And he's addressing those who will, at the end time, say, where's the promise of his coming? Um, and so he's kind of addressing that, uh, that issue that he started out with. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, all this is saying is that uh, when people start saying, where's his coming, uh, the answer is he's not delayed. He hasn't forgot. He didn't go off and start a new universe and forget about us. He's just patient. And the reason he's patient is because he wants people to be saved. His motive is salvation, right? That's it. That's all it's saying. Now, people have written whole books on how a thousand years equals a day and, uh, you know, 7,000 years in this period and that period. And, uh, and you can do that uh, if you just think it's fun, but there's no grounding in that. He's just saying God lived a really long time and a thousand years to him is like a day to you. That's all he's saying, right? So let's not make more of it than it is unless, you know, you're going to write a weird book and make a lot of money. Um, it happens. What I want you to, to see is it's a mark of his patience. And he's always been like that. It's really easy to read the Old Testament and people, because you read the Old Testament and in an afternoon, uh, you've read like 800 years of history and it feels like 20 minutes because it was just an afternoon. Well, that was 800 years. You don't realize how patient God is. You see a lot of people get taken out in the Old Testament, right? Because um, God is purifying. The flood is the way God has to purify a wicked earth without the cross of Jesus, without grace, without redemption. He just has to take everybody who's wicked, which left one family, right? So uh, it looks harsh in the Old Testament, but you, you got to see the patience of God. I love how long he waited until the flood came. Next time you read the Old Testament, look at how long he waits to bring judgment against Israel. Or how patient he is, how many iterations he goes through of sending them judges and restoring them even though they keep turning away. Before It's hundreds of years before he sends them into captivity, even though Moses told them they would go into captivity before they even went into the promised land. He's so patient. I love uh, in Genesis 15, he's telling Abraham, your descendants are going to inherit Canaan, but you're going to go into slavery for 400 years because the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its fullness yet. I know I'm going to have to wipe out that nation because they're wicked, but I'm giving them another 400 years because I'm patient. You get it? And so we need to see that this is just a mark of his patience. Now, uh, let's get into the next section, which is about the day of the Lord. And we need to understand this term. All right? So uh, let me read this, and then we'll come back, and I'll, I'll explain some more. Uh, read verses 10 through 13. He says, uh, though continue, he's continuing to talk about how the earth is reserved for fire. And he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, 
since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Sounds like I like the new heaven and new earth and righteousness dwells part. The elements melting is a little intense, right? So let's parse this. And this is beginning to get where I had some things in eschatology that I was trying to figure out. So the first thing you have to understand is this. When the Bible says the day of the Lord, it does not mean a 24-hour day. There are a bunch of things that happen in the day of the Lord. Even the coming of Jesus is not a 24-hour day. There's a lot of things going to go on. He's going to come. He's going to probably come to Mount Sinai. He's going to come up. Isaiah tells us he's going to come up through uh, Edom, uh, the route that Israel took. They wanted to go through Edom, and Edom wouldn't let him. This time he's not asking. He's coming through, and by the time he gets done, his robe's going to be covered in blood. That's going to take more than a day. He's going to come to Megiddo. He's going to gather the nations there. He's going to uh, destroy the nations that gather there. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to split in two. Jerusalem's going to, Israelites are going to flee through there. All these things. Um, he's going to circle the earth. Every aisle see him. It's not just a day. And then the millennium is included in that. All the things that happen in the millennium. All the way to the new heaven and new earth. It's all the day of the Lord. Okay? So you need to understand this is describing an era not a day, because if you try and fit all the events into a day, uh, your eschatology will get really frustrating. So uh, it's an era where several events are grouped together, but keep in mind, all of these events are going towards the one purpose, which is God restoring the earth and humanity and making his creation perfect. Amen? Amen? Okay, now here's what is confusing me. What bugged me about Peter, and the reason I, I, I feel like I, I had the whole thing down pretty well, except for this part where Peter starts talking about fire and the, uh, the new heaven and new earth, because Peter just put it all together. And I'm like, Peter, where's the millennium in this? Uh, you know, you just put all these things together in the day of the Lord, and you, and I, you know, it's almost like you've got the, the new heaven and the new earth right up against Jesus coming, and I couldn't figure all that out. Um, and then I realized this, Peter didn't have Revelation 20. Uh, John got the revelation that led to the book of that name, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, pretty creative. And uh, he got that 25 to 30 years after Peter died. So Peter did not have the millennium. Uh, that's, now he had a lot of the things that were going to happen in that period, but he didn't have that thousand-year period uh, to fit in there, which was what was confusing me, all right? You'll understand more as I go further. So um, he didn't know that this day of the Lord was going to encompass a thousand-year period. So for all he knew, it was, you know, two years and 47 days, I don't know, whatever. Uh, so what he did have is Isaiah 60 through 66. The last seven chapters of Isaiah are pretty clearly about this day of the Lord. And, and it, we see things like Christ's first coming, we see his second coming, we see uh, the millennial period in there, uh, the new Jerusalem, you see a lot of things. I'm not going to read all those to you because that's a lot of chapters. Uh, what I have done is pulled out a handful of selective verses and I've noted them in your notes. You can go check them. I'm just going to tell you what they say, Okay. So here are things that Peter and any good student of the Old Testament in Peter's time could have known about uh, the day of the Lord or the last days. Um, in chapter 60, verse 12, uh, they could have known that the nations that won't serve Israel will all perish. Now that happens in the millennial period. The nations that refuse to serve Israel will all perish. Remember last week, I was talking about how excited they are about Messiah's coming and restoring the kingdom of Israel? This is why. Wouldn't that, you know, if, if we had a prophecy hanging over us that any nation that wouldn't serve America would perish, we'd be excited about that, wouldn't we? And they were. 
In uh, verse 19 of the same chapter, uh, we learn that the Lord is the light in Jerusalem, that they don't need the sun, the moon. The Lord is the light 24-7. There is no night. Of course, we see that again in Revelation chapter 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 21, when it's talking about uh, the new Jerusalem. Uh, in verse 21, uh, we see that all Israel will be righteous and that they will inherit the land forever. They'll never be moved out of the land. Now, what Peter didn't know is they were going to be scattered all over the earth uh, in just another five years, right? So, but we know that at some point, all Israel will be righteous and they will inherit the land forever. Uh, I love it. It matches nicely with verse 13. Uh, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's going to be a righteous heaven and earth. Isn't that awesome? Who wants to live there? Yeah, me too. Verse 17, uh, 65, skipping to chapter 65, verse 17, we actually see there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the former ones will not be remembered. Does anybody remember what the earth was like before the flood? You guys remember how it didn't rain, and, you know, the canopy and plants got real big? No one remembers that, do they? It's going to be the same. I mean, we kind of know, we can speculate, but it says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and the former won't even be remembered. This won't even be remembered. Isn't that wild? Tells us that in Revelation 21 again also. These are parallel passages. And so Peter knew that there would be a new heaven and a new earth. Um, he knew from verse 19 that it was going to be really good there. That there would be no more weeping, just like we see again in Revelation chapter 21, that there wasn't going to be pain and sorrow and suffering and weeping in this new heaven and earth. Uh, in verse 20, uh, restored longevity, the child who dies at 100 will be counted accursed. I haven't made 100 yet, right? That'll just be young. Pretty cool. So he knew all these things were going to happen. Verse 25, uh, animals would no longer have a predatory spirit. Lion would lie down with the lamb. Critters that used to eat each other would get along. What that means for us is the cat in my backyard, I'll go out one day and it'll be laying there with a rabbit, just having a good time. <laughs> Instead of bringing it to my door, dead. A different spirit, a whole different spirit in the earth, in creation. Isn't that wild? And then in 66.22, uh, the new heavens and earth will remain. This is the last remake because this one's going to be done perfect. Amen? Isn't that exciting? All right. So I'd like to see that. Um, now, let's talk about the process of getting there, because Peter twice now has talked about fire. And again, I'm going to explain this more as we get to the end, but this is the part that hung me up a little bit. Not that we have it, that just where to place it. So let me read you some verses that talk about this, because, um, you know, we, we sing about Jesus coming on the clouds, and uh, and it sounds cool, and he's glo there's glory, and every eye will see him, but it, it may be a little more intense than we have anticipated. Just saying. So let's read about it. In Isaiah 66, uh, verses 15 through 16, again, talking about the day of the Lord, it says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind, if you want to have fun, do a, a quick word study on fire and whirlwind. There's a bunch of verses I didn't include, um, but uh, God seems to surround himself with fire and whirlwinds a lot more than we realized. Uh, remember how he would appear to Israel as a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day? I'm thinking maybe not a fluffy cloud, maybe a whirlwind cloud. Maybe a scary cloud, I don't know. But he's coming with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. That just sounds like that. I should have a different voice for that. Like the movie voice, the slain of the Lord shall be many. Uh, yeah, that would work. A good Celtic voice would, yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, that's heavy. 
right? He's just, he's coming in. He's not coming now as a lamb. He's coming as a lion. And fire goes before him. And men and women are getting slain. Psalm 110. He will execute kings in his wrath. Uh, you probably remember the old psalm from the 80s, Psalm 79. A fire goes before him and burns up all his enemies. The hills melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. And so maybe we need this vision of what it means when Jesus comes. Jeremiah 23, 19 through 20. Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. What are the thoughts of his heart? To destroy those who destroy the earth. To fix the earth. I'm, he's going to execute that. He's going to perfect creation. Right? Uh, and I love this. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. So this is going to make sense to you guys as you get close to the end. Right? That's Jeremiah. Let's jump to the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 1. Now, the interesting thing is, in Thessalonians, Paul refers to things they already knew, and it seems like they had a much more robust eschatology than, than the church does today. And so I'm really, it bugs me that Paul didn't spell it out. I'm like, Paul, I know they knew, but we didn't know what they know. Could you tell us what they knew? Um, and he doesn't. But, so we get some things, but we don't get the whole picture. But they clearly uh, had a, an eschatological view in those days. And here's some of it. And it says, uh, And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they knew he was coming with fire. This was common knowledge. Peter's just referencing something they knew. Now, this may change the way you read Luke chapter 12, verse 49. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, I didn't come, this, the pastor where he says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword to set uh, people in the same household against one another. I'm for Jesus. I'm against Jesus. Dividing line, right? He starts that with, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Now, if you don't know Jesus, and you don't understand this passage, and you don't understand the purpose or the intention, uh, you're like, dude, what are you talking about? Right? Why are you wishing fire on the earth? Well, he's wishing fire on the earth because he's, he, he's anxious to perfect his creation. And he's going to do it with fire. Amen. And so he's going, hey, I didn't come. But he, he points out, but, he says in that same passage, but I have a baptism to be baptized with. So he's, he's kind of hinting towards his second coming. He's saying, I've come to, to purify the earth, to send fire on the earth, and I wish I was doing that now. But first, I have to be the sacrificial lamb. I have a baptism I have to be baptized with. But I'll come back, and I'll do this fire thing. Cool? Okay. So what I want you to see, and I put down a bunch of other verses there you could look at, and there's actually more. I just thought those were the best ones about fire and whirlwind. Uh, you can look them up on your own. But what I want you to see is that the day of the Lord has this same redemptive purpose. Uh, it's not, I'm just angry and I'm burning things up. It's, I'm purifying the earth. I'm making all things new. Amen? Yep for that? Yes. Okay, good. All right, so it'll be fiery and exciting. Now, Peter is reminding us of this, something they already knew. And he emphasizes three elements of the day of the Lord. Again, he's just kind of mashing all this stuff together. He's not worrying about time frames or orders or whether it's a thousand years or a few days. Um, so let's look at the three things he emphasizes in his discourse. He emphasizes first the sudden and unexpected coming of the Lord, a thief in the night, right? Now, Thessalonians also references this. Paul um, talks about this with the Thessalonians when he says, for you yourselves know perfectly, and again, he's referencing things that apparently they all knew this, uh, and he says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. 
For when they say peace and safety, um, by the way, for the, you can go back and listen to my Revelation teaching, but there will be a three and a half year uh, term of peace before he comes. And uh, they're going to think they've, you know, uh, they've made everybody happy. So when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But then there's a caveat that's a very important one. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. It's important to understand when he talks about him coming as a thief at night, he's surprising the wicked because they don't think he's really coming. And they think they're going to get away with it. And they don't get, they have forgotten willfully that he made the earth and that he did the flood and he's going to come again and do it with fire that he will perfect the earth. So they are taken off guard as a thief in the night. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so you don't have to be taken off guard. Now you aren't going to know the day but when he comes you can go, well, I didn't know it was today, but I did know that was happening. Here we go, right? I'm ready for it because I know the plan. Now, the point is we have to be on board with the plan. There are two other passages I put down there. I'm not going to read them. You can read them on your own. Matthew 24 and Revelation 3 both talk about him coming as a thief in the night, but they add something. They both add an admonition or a warning to watch. Said, watch, because he comes as a thief in the night. Watch. Now, when the Bible says watch, it means pray. It means, but not just pray like make sure you know you you said the Lord's prayer that morning. It means watch, pay attention to what's going on on the earth, know the plan, and pray into it. Be partnering with God in the plan. Be praying about the things that are happening in the earth as you see it coming. Be praying about. Uh, the, uh, the people who are saying he's not coming and people who are being deceived and all those last days issues, the wars and rumors of wars. Be praying into this. Be praying for my coming. Be praying for my purposes. Be watching so you are not caught off guard. So you don't think everything's fine and suddenly uh, fire. Right? With me? Okay. Prayer thing is important. We'll see that again in a second. So the second thing, uh, the second element that he points out in these three elements is the destruction of heaven and earth, literally the elements dissolving. Remember we talked earlier about the strong force that holds everything together? Uh, uh, it's going to be apparently either hot enough that the elements dissolve or Jesus just lets go and goes, dissolve. Uh, <laughs> either one works. Uh, but there's going to be fire destruction of heaven and the earth. There's going to be noise. It's going to be loud. And again, the purpose of what Peter's saying about this is remember the flood. See, like if you were living in Mesopotamia and Noah was your neighbor and you saw him building a big boat, this is a good time to be paying attention, to be watching. What you doing, Noah? What's up? It's the same message. It's, you know, as, uh, because the only ones that are going to escape are the ones that are in the ark, right? Who's the ark? Jesus. Jesus. So uh, it's the same message. Be paying attention. Uh, remember the flood. He's going to destroy the heavens and the earth. He's going to remake them. The elements are going to dissolve. And then he goes on to the third element that he wants to talk about. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be righteous, where righteousness dwells. This is awesome. Now, this is where I was confused because here's where I'm at. Uh, it looks to me in Revelation 21 like um, the new heavens and the new earth come after the millennium, right? And uh, clearly there's fire involved when Jesus comes. That's, you just can't get around, for example, Isaiah 66. And then Peter starts talking about there's fire in the new heavens and the new earth. And so I've got those. Peter didn't have the millennium to worry about, but I do because I've read Revelation. So I've got a thousand year separation between those events, and I'm going, I can't figure this out, God. Which one has fire? Do they both have fire? Are you coming with fire? Is there, is there fire at the end? 
uh, is, is the earth being remade? Blah, blah, blah. And so I'm trying to figure that out. And that's so why I just kind of, that was my eschatological, I don't know, uh, there. Um, but interestingly, uh, I'm going to have to give Stuart the assist on this one. Uh, Stuart agrees. I was, I was on Friday night. I'm texting Stuart and I said, hey, by the way, what do you think about this Peter lumping all these things together into one thing? And he put me on a trail uh, that I hadn't thought about. And, uh, and so and this is actually where Stuart is, and I'm kind of leaning towards this now. Um, so here's the trail. Um, what if uh, it's not immediate, but a process? And here's what I mean. I look at Revelation 21.1, and it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now because Revelation 20 is clearly the millennium, I was prepared to put the new heaven and the new earth right after the millennium, thinking God just went new heaven, new earth, because he could do that, because he's God. But here's what I hadn't caught before. Uh, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Past tense. And I'm like, huh, he didn't tell me when it passed away. He just says, all of a sudden, we're in a new heaven and a new earth. I'm like, well, when did it happen? And it doesn't tell me. And so I don't have to place it at the end of the millennium anymore. I just don't know where it is. And I don't know if it happens all at once. Right? And so the question becomes, and as I've found out, as I've looked into this more, there are schools of thought in both camps. Is the fire at the end of the millennium an event where we get a new heaven or a new earth? Or is it a process that begins at his coming? He comes with fire, and he begins over the next thousand years creating a new heaven and a new earth. Now, Stuart talks about it as like a controlled burn. Uh, I don't know, maybe. What's wonderful is I go, okay, I, I've just realized I don't have to place the new heaven and new earth instantaneously at the end of the millennium, so now I don't know, and I'm a lot more comfortable not knowing than having to figure out what Peter was talking about. So it's somewhere in there. All right, does that help you guys? Okay, maybe this will. What I find interesting, and again, understand what we're talking about. We know Jesus comes with fire. We know that fire is involved in making the new heaven and new earth. We just don't know exactly how we get a new heaven and new earth. Now, uh, I think Gary pointed out this morning, we were talking about this, that uh, God created the earth in six days, Right? So he doesn't need a thousand years. But when he remade the earth the first time with the flood, that took over a year. He could have done it faster, but he took over a year. I don't know. I don't know uh, at what point we're there. Um, I know some things do definitely happen at the end of the millennium, like Satan being thrown into a pit. I'm very excited about that, uh, which has a lot to do with the whole righteousness thing. Um, so I don't know where it lasts, but think about this. In Revelation 21, verse 5, and this is, this is the new heaven passage where he's talking about how critters are getting along and people aren't weeping or uh, people aren't sick and all that stuff. And he says, Then he who sat on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. Now in this case, he's talking about the actual creation being entirely made new. Where have we heard that before? Anybody? Second, Second Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. Now, how many of you has that happened to? Right. How many of you, everything's new? I still got some stuff that don't feel new. Is it instant or is it a process? Seems to be a little of both, doesn't it? We have the, the instantaneous, our spirit, born again, new man. But there's more new coming. Right? I'm expecting some more new. And even in my life, I'm working out some of that new. Resisting my flesh to walk in the spirit. Right? And so I don't know, but I find it interesting that he uses the exact same phrase. Um, all that to say, I'm very, very confident now that we will have a new heaven and a new earth. I just don't know at what point we attain that. 
It's somewhere between Jesus coming and the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Good? All right. Okay, well, let's move on. Uh, the important thing is not so much that we place all these things on a timeline, but that we uh, are watching and we're responding and we're ready. Now, Peter suggests in this same passage three appropriate responses to this information. Now that you have this information, what are the appropriate responses? The first one is to pursue holy conduct and godliness because the earth is going to end up being righteous and we should get there ahead of time. Jesus has made the provision for us to be righteous. We should pursue holy conduct and godliness because he's going, after all, to destroy those who destroy the earth. We don't want to be on that team. Amen? The second is he says that we're to look for that day. And again, I refer you to watch, as in watch and pray. We're to be looking for that day. We're to be not trying to necessarily fix things ourselves or being super, not, again, pick up your trash, don't just go, well, it's all burning anyway. But, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of excuse I'd use when I was like 15. They're just going to burn anyway. I'll take care of it. Um, so we do what we can, but we're really not hoping on us to fix the earth. We're going to get a new earth. Right. right? All right. So we look for that day, not for our own solutions. And then here's the part I love. He says um, that we can not only look for that day, but hasten his coming. Did you catch that? How many of you would like Jesus to come sooner? We can hasten his coming, uh, which begs the question, how do we do that? Because I'd like to speed things up. So it is basically, simply, partnering with his plan. He's coming. He's fulfilling his plan. We can speed that up by partnering with his plan, by moving his plan along. How do we do that? Well, that is in Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7, uh, which is also right in the middle of those chapters about uh, the day of the Lord, right? Here we go. Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. What do watchmen do? Pray. They pray. Modern watchmen pray. We aren't just looking for enemies. We're praying. We know who the enemy is. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. How often should we be praying? Day and night. Now, we've got a lot of people, so we can probably pull that off. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes, till he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Jerusalem being a praise in the earth is that new heaven, new earth, perfect deal, right? When all the nations come to Jerusalem. We're not to let him rest until then. Basically, God's saying, bug me about this until this happens. Bug me about the day of the Lord until the day of the Lord fully complete, until he establishes not just begins the day of the Lord, but does the whole thing. Let's pray and, and, and partner with him in this. That's what he's meaning, I think, when he says watch and pray. In the last days, he's looking for a church that's partnering with him in prayer, that's interceding, that's going, yes, Lord, we see the plan. We're down with the plan. Keep doing it, Lord. Keep going. Keep going. We're with you. We're interceding until Jerusalem is a praise in the earth, until we have a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Right? That's our job. Okay. So let's real quickly do the last few verses, and then we'll be done with Peter. Verses 14 through 18, I think we can cover really fast. It's kind of a final exhortation. He says, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And also, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. So he's probably referring to the letter of Thessalonians, which talks a lot about this. Is also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, uh, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, 
Since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. So, simple, five points. Remember in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, he told us how we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, and immediately followed with, therefore be diligent to lay hold of those things. So he ends again with, be diligent. Uh, so Peter's message to us several times is, be diligent. Don't slack off. Keep going. Keep pressing in. Go for it. Knowing what's coming. And he points out that Paul can sometimes be hard to understand. So he's uh, just you know throwing in there, I get it. I've read Paul too. I understand, guys. It's okay. I know he's hard to understand. But just because he's hard to understand is not an excuse for untaught and unstable people to twist the scriptures. And not only Paul's scriptures, they'll twist all the scriptures. Why are they twisting the scriptures? Because they want to pursue their own lusts and desires. And the scriptures are an impediment to that. And so he says, you therefore be steadfast against wickedness. In other words, don't let them twist the scriptures to try and make you believe that something that God has said is wicked is not wicked. Right? Any of that going on? All right. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to be mean about it. We just go, no, I'm going to stick with the scriptures. I'm going to pursue righteousness. And I'm going to let God define what's good and what's evil, not culture. And finally, Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We can always grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We don't get to the end of the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And so uh, we never know enough. We never arrived. Uh, we spend our life growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, going deeper. Uh, as, as you know, Sandy said, getting questions answered. I just got a question answered this weekend. I didn't have an answer to before. I feel a whole lot better about my eschatology now. All right? Even though uh, Federico doesn't. I've caused more problems for him. It's an opportunity for him to grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So you're welcome. All right. Any questions? I didn't really mean that. All right. We have finished. Uh, Peter, we're going on to something I'm kind of excited about. I'll tell you more about next week as we get started. Uh, so you can read up on this on your own. I just want to uh, just, I've enjoyed the depth that I've seen in, in Peter that I hadn't seen before. And, uh, and we just need to let these things, these concepts continue to deepen us. I really believe we're in a season where Christ is, trying to have his heart formed in his church in a greater way. He's after deepening us in our hearts. And so let's let him keep doing that. Amen?